This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we continue our discussion of a few early documents from the American continent. American history, uh, as all history, seeks to understand the interactions of our plural pasts and our contested beginnings. And the Journal of William Bradford, or uh, you know what we today know as of Plymouth Plantation, has been really an important primary source in understanding these interactions on this continent. Um, it documents over 37 years of a little group of religious sectarian refugees as they immigrated out of England through uh, today what is the Netherlands and across the Atlantic to the shores of the North American continent. I mean, it's a key text in understanding the British experience in North America because it's so early, uh, even though the group that it tracks, who two centuries later would be called the Pilgrims, it's a very small group compared to the much larger groups that are going to follow. Yeah, and Bradford work, you know, it's considered by historians to be the first great work of American literature, and that's why it's in almost all of our American literature textbooks. And I guess for historians, <laughs> I can see that. But for lovers of the English language, and I, I speak for myself and most of the students who I drag through this text, it's kind of dry. <laughs> what? Are you, are you saying you don't like it? Oh, no, I'm not saying that. I I do like it. Uh, for sure, you know, looking at, let's say, if you compare it to pieces like The Great Gatsby, you don't see unusual figurative language. We don't see writing like Shakespeare or John Donne. I mean, there's no dragons like in Beowulf, but there's not even romance like we're going to see in Anne Bradstreet. It's written in the quote, and they call it the plain style. That tells you a lot right there, although that does make it easier to read when you think that you have to read something that's from 1620. You know, Bradford's handwriting even is pretty good. And if you look at the scanned copies, and you can, and I think it's pretty cool, so much so that 
you know, we've linked uh, what they look like. You can look at the scan copies on our webpage if you want to. You know, it's possible to read. It's not easy to read, but it is possible. Some people call of Plymouth Plantation a journal, but honestly, that's not really uh, the right term for what it actually is. That term implies that he was keeping it like a diary, maybe in real time, but that's not what he did. He does give a chronicle of events, but it's written in retrospect, in some cases, decades after the events that he describes. It's a memoir. Um, Bradford tried as best as possible to be that first-hand observer, to give an honest account, as, a, as honest as any person possibly could, of their experiences on this life. And of course, by definition, first-hand narratives have to be understood within the culture and the context of the perspective of the writer. But for us, and of course this is 400 years later, it doesn't strike me as propagandistic. I mean, it's not deliberately propagandistic. It's not dishonest. He didn't monetize his position. You would think, you know, we see celebrities doing that today. Uh, He didn't even publish it. It's a unique insight into the perspectives of a people. And this is a certain people that they've been characterized, maybe mischaracterized. Sometimes they've even been turned into cartoon characters (laughs) over the centuries. Well, uh, and they are, even for their day, a somewhat unusual group, really, uh, in some ways. They were misanthropes. Isn't that a great word? Uh, Bradford himself was born in a wealthy landed family, who, and at an early age, he lost both his parents, and he became an orphan. He was raised by uncles and was really too sickly to help with the farming. And against their wishes, he began attending religious meetings of this fringe religious group known as Separatists. Um, In fact, it was so fringe that King James threatened the group and they fled the country, eventually going to Leiden, which is a small town outside of Amsterdam. The group stayed there uh, for 12 years. Bradford got married there. He became a leader in a community. He had a house and a business. However, uh, they eventually uh, had to feel threatened again, and this time they chose to move across the ocean. And Bradford and his wife Dorothy left their son in Amsterdam and with 100 others boarded a boat called the Mayflower to build new lives and, and what they were thinking of as a new world. And 200 years later, they would be uh, termed pilgrims, as in biblical pilgrims, uh, maybe even like what we would think of in the book Pilgrim's Progress. This is uh, just one example of many ways this group has been represented long after they've passed. And uh, Dorothy did not even make it very long in the New World. Not too long after they arrived at Cape Cod, the men went out to explore the area and find a place to land the boat. Dorothy fell over and she drowned in totally calm waters. She just fell over for no reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, And, you know, that's an example of how we don't know how to understand things written 400 years ago. Um, There's been some that argue that she jumped. uh, She'd left her son. She herself is really not much older than a teenager. They've arrived in a place that is, by its very definition, um, hostile to survival. So maybe she did. We don't know, but it's certainly possible. And, you know, I I don't want to make the story any more sensational than it already is, but... 
Bradford gives no details about this really deeply personal event that he just states that she died. And uh, instead, he focuses on the more mundane or even the communal experiences of their lives as they engage uh, the various other groups on the continent. He talks about their engagement with what they call the adventurers or what we would call the investors. They were always at odds with the investors. And he talks about their engagement with the other groups of settlers, the Puritans. There was conflict there as well. Um, He talks about their engagements with the local indigenous peoples. And there were three different groups and uh, their interactions with each group were slightly different. Some positive, others were hostile. And a lot of what he writes about is really the economics of it all, which admittedly can be dry reading for sure. But there are parts of it that have kind of grown into a mythological story about the impact of the large European migrations into the American continent in the 1600s and 1700s. And, you know, although we're not going to take time to read it, the Mayflower Compact has been read and studied as an attempt at building a modified European-style government. It's like it's the first in the, the stages of all government building in our history. And The Thanksgiving story specifically has uh, definitely evolved into American folklore to the point that every year uh, in my classes, the uh, the half day we have before Thanksgiving, we always have the annual hand turkey (laughs) drawing contest. Oh, yes. And there's competitions. There are prizes. There are great prizes. <laughs> anyway, uh, the meal upon which all this fanfare is based is certainly a real event. But as these kinds of stories often do, it's you know it's certainly been romanticized over the years. And and uh, actually, there were no uh, you know paper hand turkeys in 1621. <laughs> you don't say. Well, yeah, it's interesting to think you know about traditions because the ones involving you know this Thanksgiving probably wouldn't have even existed except for a document that was lost for over 200 years. When Bradford's journal was discovered in the library of the Bishop of London in 1855, it generated all kinds of excitement, not only about the pilgrim's experience, but also because of the genealogies that he included in his logs. People could, for the first time, and they wanted to trace their family trees to see if they were descended in any way from these early refugees. I don't think my family's descended. <laughs> but anyway, Bradford's account, as he recorded it, certainly did not mythologize the pilgrim's experience. In fact, he was very uncomfortable with many things that happened. In some ways, it reminds me of Jimmy Baca's discussion about being caught between impossible choices. And there are places where he's optimistic, for sure, especially in part one. But there are a lot of places where he's discouraged and he admits to failures and he admits to being disappointed and a lot of the dreams that they had envisioned before they ever left Europe. Yeah. And can we again point out that they have landed in an absolute howling wilderness? Yeah. (laughs) That's a little discouraging. You know, uh, lots of what he recounts is genuinely sad for all the parties involved but i will also say there are a few that seem a little humorous to me looking back at you know how human their lives really were you know humor is one word that is not often associated with (laughs) pilgrims or even puritans really well that's true you know uh, there's not a more famous quote about the puritans than the one uh by h.l mencken when he defines puritanism as this and i quote the haunting fear that someone somewhere 
maybe happy, but I would like to point out H.L. Mencken was a social critic. It was his job to be unhappy with everything he saw. a grumpy person? Yes. Well, I think Bradford would point out, we're not Puritans! Exactly. <laughs> but he, it, that, that quote, you know, does sound a little mean. <laughs> well, it is, and it's obviously untrue, and uh, you know, he's not wrong to understand that these understand these groups as being very serious people. Did I mention they were living in a howling wilderness? <laughs> I think That'll make howling. you very serious. Everyone always so talks about how howling it is. Yes, well, I do a lot. I like that phrase. <laughs> so, uh, but there are accounts of them having fun. I mean, even pilgrims and Puritans partied from time to time. And uh, if you can believe it, and there were those that uh, resembled our cliched version of a uh, college fraternity house. And, you know, in fact, Bradford records an altercation with a guy that he portrayed as just basically kind of a frat guy. His name was Thomas Morton. And uh, William Bradford absolutely did not get along with him. Uh, religiously, Morton was an Anglican, whereas Bradford was a separatist who had gone to great lengths to get away from the Anglicans. But more problematically, Morton was something of a free spirit. Uh, so free, in fact, that he set up a free love colony with the native peoples <laughs> not too far from where the pilgrims had settled. So there is nothing oh new under the sun. You know, and this didn't go over well with Bradford's group. No, I can group. imagine. And uh, what made Bradford even more mad at him was that, you know, he sold guns and ammunition to the native peoples who, in turn, at times had skirmishes with the pilgrims. And, you know, let me read one paragraph of what Bradford had to say about his nemesis. But this Morton, being now left to himself in this manner and having more craft than honesty, yet none of the best wits neither, he framed a new business to be busy in, that is, to be revenged on them for his beating, and to that end he got a quantity of strong liquors and made them drunk, and in his madness he showed how he could cut and slash. And they also cut and slashed in good earnest sometimes twenty in a morning, and would get on the top of their homes, and there make a posture of defense and defiance, and say they would not be wronged, nor would they be compelled to come to them to be abused. Besides, they would play at football amongst themselves, and from thence on go to pike buttock and such like sports. They would have horse races and make bets with one another of drink and money, and this was the way they spent their time. I'm very curious about what is the sport of pike buttock. <laughs> I wonder what football is. I can tell he doesn't approve of their frolicking. <laughs> Whatever the game was. <laughs> well, I guess it should be of no surprise you know, that even the pilgrims cannot agree on what utopia should look at. And, you know, that's the problem of of being human. We don't agree, and Morton and Bradford did not have the same vision of this howling wilderness as you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yet they both were working on different utopias. And, yeah. Well, you know, and they didn't. And this wasn't the only problem uh, Bradford wrote about, or even the most serious one. There were many problems. And one major problem that modern scholars have attempted to discuss ever since is the impact uh, the European migration had on local indigenous people. And, you know, let me preface this by saying that the history of the entire planet since the beginning of time is a history of people moving from one place to another and empire building. You know, that's not new in the 17th century. It's not a new phenomenon. Uh, and it's not something unique to the British or even the European peoples. In America, for centuries, we focused on American or Western history. So, the, you know, we've not been trained in understanding how small our place really is in the long line of history on the earth. 
But, you know, nonetheless, in this case, we must understand the impact that the Europeans had on the American continent when they engaged the people here. Of course, we know, and we expect to see military conflict and war, but actually the most devastating impact on local peoples was not caused by war um, or even by the technology of guns or gunpowder, you know, all of that technology we're talking about. Uh, the most damaging impact, of course, was the transmission of disease. And, of course, we know and have, uh, you know, already talked about half of the colonists dying after arriving in the New World. And we know that many of the colonists died of diseases they acquired in the New World. And, um, however, the reverse is also true and far more damaging. And Native peoples were impacted by diseases brought to them from Europe, and their impact was devastating and wide-ranging. And, you know, the estimates are varied, but some historians, you know, calculate that up to 90% of Native peoples would eventually die from newly introduced pathogens, you know, diseases like influenza and smallpox or measles. And uh, there were three horrific epidemics amongst indigenous peoples in this particular area between 1614 or 1620. Uh, you know, on that those were years before the pilgrims had arrived and villages were entirely wiped out and over 100,000 people of the Wampanoag Nation alone, uh, you know, that's the nation around Plymouth, died right before the pilgrims arrived. And this was called the Great Dying. So when the pilgrims landed on December 21st, that's the date, 1620, there is a context at play. The context that they're landing in an area that has just really recently been decimated by a plague or a terrifying epidemic. Right. Uh, the Wampanoag Nation, which is the nation we're, we're talking about uh, that had been in this area for the previous 10,000 years. But, you know, but by 1620, they were on the verge of collapse and not just by the plague, you know, because the Wampanoag Nation was so decimated by disease, it was now also vulnerable to attack from other indigenous nations, which was quite common. And one nation, specifically the uh, Narragansett, were encroaching on their territory and threatening to destroy them completely. You know, when we read history or stories or anything, context is so important. And in this case, it's important to understand that this is part of the pilgrim story. They had their reasons for leaving, but now they're arriving in this new place, and it's full of its own troubles. It's in the middle of winter, and we have this small boat containing a 100 poor religious refugees with basically no skills to surviving in these local places. They show up hundreds of miles from where they're supposed to be, I know some people have said they've done this intentionally, unintentionally. I don't know that it matters. But they land their boat at a site of an abandoned village. And you can tell me if I'm saying this wrong. The name, the, the indigenous name for this place was Patuxet. And this place had been completely wiped out by a plague. The pilgrims, as they called themselves, would rename this place Plymouth after they got there, after the port that they left from in in Devon, England. So there's two perspectives. We have the one of the refugees, and now we have the ones who are ultimately going to be receiving these refugees. This is how Bradford describes this in chapter nine of his account. For full disclosure, I do want to say that I've cut and edited some of things out of it, not to change the meaning, but we needed to condense it so it'd be less wordy and we could get to the full story uh, before running too long. 
So this is the story of the arrival of the pilgrims into this new land. Being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven, who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth, their proper element. But here I cannot but stay and make a pause and stand half amazed at this poor people's present condition. And so I think will the reader too when he well considers the same. Being thus past the vast ocean and a sea of troubles before in their preparation, they had now no friends to welcome them, no inns to entertain or refresh their weather-beaten bodies, no houses or much less towns to repair to to seek for succor. And for the season it was winter, and they that know the winters of that country know them to be sharp and violent and subject to cruel and fierce storms, dangerous to travel in known places, much more to search an unknown coast. Besides, what could they see but a hideous and desolate wilderness full of wild beasts and wild men, and what multitudes there might be of them they knew not? If they looked behind them, there was the mighty ocean which they had passed and was now as a main bar and gulf to separate them from all the civil parts of the world. What could now sustain them but the Spirit of God and His grace? But that which was most sad and lamentable was that in two or three months' time, half of their company died, especially in January and February, being the depth of winter and wanting houses and other comforts, being infected with the scurvy and other diseases which this long voyage and their inaccommodate condition have brought upon them. So, as there died sometimes two or three a day in the aforesaid time of that, of one hundred and odd persons, scarce fifty remain. And of these, in time of most distress, there was but six or seven sound persons who, to their great commendations, be it spoken, spared no pains, night or day, but with abundance of toil and hazard of their own health, fetched them wood, made them fires, dressed them meat, made their beds, washed their loathsome clothes, clothed and unclothed them, in a word, did all the homely and necessary offices for them, which dainty and queasy stomachs cannot endure to hear named. <laughs> you know, we read a, a little bit more of this in class the other day, and the kids, when they finished reading it, had decided that maybe they would have preferred to be sick than to be the six or seven that had to take care <laughs> Yes. <laughs> because things are bad. Uh, even though he's obviously trying not to be super emotional as he recorded it, it's clear that the conditions are awful. Uh, another part that I read, uh, men were saying to each other, I didn't even want to come on this trip if it hadn't been for my wife. Hmm. <laughs> I know. Yeah, because half of them, I mean, it's, I don't even know how to imagine. They're literally dead. And it's understandable that they would be discouraged. You know, they came all this way, but it's cold. There's no place to camp outside of Massachusetts. They're stuck on the boat. There's nothing to eat except what they had that's left over. There's not clean air. You know, they didn't expect, they thought once they got here, all that would be over. But ironically, uh, it's now a place of disease for them. And that is ironic because that's what it has also been for the indigenous people that had been living there for the last three or four years because of the arrivals of other uh, European implants. By chapter 11, they are literally starving and would have all starved if it weren't for the intervention of the local people. And Bradford records that interaction as well. 
All this while the Indians came skulking about them and would sometimes show themselves aloof of, but when any approached near them, they would run away. And once they stole away their tools where they had been at work and were gone to dinner. But about the 16th of March, a certain Indian came boldly among them and among and spoke to them in broken English, which they could well understand, but it marveled at it. At length they understood by discourse with him that he was not of these parts, but belonged to the eastern parts, where some English ships came to fish, with whom he was acquainted, and could have sundry of them by their names, amongst whom he had got his language. His name was Samoset. He told them also of another Indian whose name was Squanto, a native of this place who had been in England and could speak better English than himself. Being after some time of entertainment and gifts dismissed, a while after he came again, and five more with him, and they brought again all the tools that were stolen away before, and made way for the coming of their great sachem called Massachoet, who after four or five days after came with the chief of his friends and other attendants, and with the aforesaid Squanto, with whom after friendly entertainment and some gifts given him, they made the peace with him which hath continued now this 24 years. So they didn't fight with this group for 24 years. After these things, he returned to his place called Soam, some 40 miles from this place. But Squanto continued with them and was their interpreter and was a special instrument, sin of God, for their good beyond their expectation. He directed them how to set their corn, where to take fish, and to procure other commodities, and was also their pilot to bring them to unknown places for their profit, and never left them till he died. What is interesting to note is that Bradford was very aware that he was writing the story of a religious community seeking to record their faith story. Um, He expresses his understanding of God's involvement in their lives from start to finish. But he was also aware that he was writing this story of a joint stock company establishing um, a business venture with investors. And as such, you know, he outlines expenses and the investments and the actors, and he does all of that in incredible detail. But um, even beyond that, and, and perhaps what we think more about today, is that he was also aware that he was recording the organization of a political organization establishing really um, a new form of government and as such uh, interacting with other political groups. All of that in his little humble book. It's in his descriptions of the interactions with these other groups that we can really see how this is one man's perspective of events where he's dropped into a situation far larger than he understands. Um, You know, in 1614, uh, a man by the name of Thomas Hunt had kidnapped a group of native men to take them back to Malaga, Spain, uh, to sell them. And one of them being a young man named Tisquantum. And this young man, essentially his name will be changed to Squanto in Europe. He flees to England. He learns English. And uh, remarkably, he returns to his home country in 1619 with an English explorer by the name of Dermer. And Dermer describes what happened when he and Squanto arrived back at Squanto's home, expecting to be greeted by friends and family. And he says this, We arrived at my savage's name country, finding all dead. You know, Bradford does mention that Squanto was kidnapped, but he doesn't talk about the plague. And and there's really not the emotional language that I would have used 
if something like that had been True. my experience. Yeah, and and Bradford does credit uh, to gives credit to Squanto for saving their lives. Afterward, they, as many as were able, began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood them in great steed, showing them both the manner of how to set it and after how to dress it and tend it, and he told them, except they got fish and set it, and these old grounds, it would come to nothing, and he showed them that in the middle of April they should store enough to come up the brook by which they began to build, and he taught them how to take it and where to get other provisions necessary for them, all which they found true by trial and error. Some English seed they sow as wheat and peas, but it came not to good, either by the badness of the seed or the lateness of the season, or both, or some defect. In this month of April, while they were busy around their seed, their governor, Mr. John Carver, came out of the field very sick, it being a hot day, and he complained greatly of his head, and he lay down, and within a few hours his senses failed, so as he never spake more till he died, which was within a few days after whose death was much lamented and caused great heaviness amongst them as there was cause. He was buried in the best manner they could with some volleys of gunshot by all that bore arms and his wife, being a weak woman, died within five or six weeks after him. Having in some sort ordered their business at home, it was thought meet, that means wise, to send some abroad to see their new friend Massasoit and to bestow upon him some gratuity to bind him the faster unto them, as also that hereby they might view the country and see it in what manner he lived, what strength he had about him, and how the ways were to his place, if at any time they should have occasion. So the 2nd of July, they sent Mr. Edward Winslow and Mr. Hopkins with the foresaid Squanto for their guide, who gave them a suit of clothes and a horseman's coat with some other small things which were kindly accepted, but they found but short comments, and they came both weary and hungry home, for the Indians used them to have nothing so much corn as they have since the English have stored them with their hose and seen their industry in breaking up new grounds therewith. They found his place to be forty miles from hence, the soil good, the people not many, being dead and abundantly wasted in the late great mortality which fell in all these parts about three years before the coming of the English, wherein thousands of them died, they not being able to bury one another, their skulls and bones were found in many places lying still above the ground, where their houses and dwellings had been, a very sad spectacle to behold. But they brought word that the Narragansetts lived but on the other side of that great bay and were a strong people and many in number living compact together and had not been at all touched with this wasting plague. Um, it is after this that, you know, we're going to get to the great and famous Thanksgiving story. And, of course, we will notice a few things that may be different than how Charlie Brown uh, performs <laughs> on a Thanksgiving special. And, first of all, it's not a very long account. They do have turkey, but maybe not pumpkin pie, certainly not football. But most notably, <laughs> uh, notice the numbers and the ethnicity of the participants. Um, there are way more Native people than there are pilgrims. And, Remember, at this point in history, there are less than 50 pilgrims. They are just a ragtag group, just barely staying alive. And the purpose of this meal is just to be thankful that they're not dead. They began now to gather in the small harvest they had and to fit up their houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength and had all the things in good plenty. 
For some were thus employed in affairs abroad, others were exercised in fishing about cod and bass and other fish, of which they took good store, of which every family had their portion. All the summer there was no want, and now began to come in store a fowl as winter approached, of which this place did abound when they came first, but afterward decreased by degrees. And besides waterfowl, there was great store of wild turkeys, of which they took many, besides venison, etc. Besides, they had about a peck of meal a week to a person, or now since harvest, Indian corn to that proportion, which made many afterwards write so largely of their plenty here to their friends in England, which were not feigned but true reports. That's it. (laughs) That's it. You know, that doesn't make mention in that account that you just read about how many indigenous people there were. Uh, You know, actually, there are two texts um, that mention what today we call the first Thanksgiving. Um, There's the one we just read, but there is one more account of this encounter written by a man named uh, Edward Winslow, and it's not long either. And he says this, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest of their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and the others." And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. And all that happened in the fall of 1621, about nine months after they arrived. You know, it's kind of sad knowing that the rest of the story, I mean, the relationships between the indigenous people and the European people would would end so horrifically over the you know, next 100 years or so. Well, true. Uh, The relationships between indigenous people and America was complex. And so any attempt to really, you know, oversimplify it is unfair to everyone. And uh, there are other stories from interactions of other groups across the continent that really inform our understanding of what ultimately resulted in regrettable tragedies that still have ramifications. You know, having said that, In this case, we're focusing really only on one group. And even though they were a minority amongst European migrants, um, there were the pilgrims, but there were other religious groups. There were the Quakers. Later on, there would be the Dunkers, and then there would be the Shakers. And there were non-religious communities, too. In uh, Virginia, there was Jamestown, for example. The the largest of these in the Northeast was the non-separatist Puritans. And You know, this is not the same group as the pilgrims, and they had different beliefs. Their arrival marked the beginning of what uh, has been called the Great Migration. They famously first arrived on the Arabella as well as other ships in 1630, but that was 10 years after the pilgrims were already on the continent. The Puritans founded the city of Boston and for a long time were a totally distinct community. It wasn't um, long before their colony outnumbered Bradford's Plymouth colony significantly. There were about 10,000 Puritan settlers, and eventually the Puritans overwhelmed the pilgrims numerically, but this was not the case during Bradford's lifetime. In fact, 
Uh, one of the goals for Bradford to even write the memoir is to document the Pilgrim's separate experience from the Puritan experience. And the relationship between the Puritans and the indigenous people was much more warring. You know, there were two big wars uh, specifically that stand out. That would be the Pequot War and later uh, what is today we call the King Philip's War, which really didn't end until 1676. And And even more ironically, or perhaps just as ironically, when William Bradford's account of the Pilgrims' arrival and their encounter with the Wampanoag people is discovered in 1855, America is entering into another great war, and one is more bloody, and it's an encounter between uh, the American people, and that would be the Great Civil War. And this one would also be full of bloodshed and disease, and, you know, it would decimate literally hundreds of thousands of people, and In July of 1863, uh, 200 years later, over 50,000 young men are going to die on the battlefield at Gettysburg, and Abraham Lincoln was invited to give a speech to dedicate a memorial to those who had given their lives that the American nation may try to live out its ideas, and um, he would begin what would be a famous address with this phrase. He says, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. You know, in other words, he's going to invoke the memory of these first European refugees to the continent. Um, you know, on October 3rd of that year, 1863, uh, one month before he would give the Gettysburg Address, but after the horrific casualties of Gettysburg, he gave this address. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving. And I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him, they do also with humble penance for our national perverseness and disobedience, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union." You can feel the sadness. You know, I felt it when I read Lincoln's address. He's interested and he wants us to invoke a spirit of thanksgiving, but he also wants us to be repentant, to be humble, and to take care of the weak, to end fighting, to end strife. It's a humble invocation, really, maybe even more than it is a spirit of thankfulness. He's asking to let our thankfulness drive us to become a better human being well uh it truly it is and what is just a side note but also very interesting is that it wasn't even president lincoln's idea uh an american author and editor by the name of sarah hale who, uh, among other things, authored the famous poem, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Uh, She had been campaigning for 36 years to create a Thanksgiving holiday on the American continent. She had conducted a letter-writing campaign for years, targeting all kinds of politicians, trying to persuade them that we needed this holiday. And 
Finally, on September 28, 1863, her letter reached President Lincoln. And I'm not sure what she said in the letter, but we know that it wasn't a week later that Lincoln took her advice. And we have been celebrating Thanksgiving in some form or fashion ever since. And of course, the story of the tiny little group that were later called Pilgrims has grown to almost mythical proportions. And I'm not sure anybody would be more surprised than William Bradford to know what had happened with that little paragraph from his journal. Maybe Squanto would be. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe so. Well... Well, thank you all for listening and being with us today. Uh, We ask that you uh, keep in touch with us through all of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, um, all the things that we we, uh, always ask you to be a part of. Text an episode to a friend and uh, check out our merchandise. Get yourself a T-shirt, all kind of fun stuff like that. Our teaching resources on our website at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Once again, thanks for being with us. Peace out. the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus.